The real big question that we need to address this morning is how much has our culture shaped our world and our worldview? This April, if my grandfather would have been alive, he would have been 128 years old. That's pretty amazing to think that I had a grandfather that was, <laughs> I'm not that old. But, uh, you know, my, uh, my grandfather, in the prime of his life, fought in World War I. Then had to endure and go through the horrors of World War II, a Great Depression, with the reality of not having two wooden nickels to scrape together to feed a family of, of six. And in, and you can imagine that there are a lot of things that go through a, a, a mind of a man who's facing the dilemmas back in the day when my grandfather was having a family and raising them up. But because he was a man of principle, he believed that if you were healthy enough to work, that you were of sound mind, you go out and you get a job and you do whatever you can in order to support your family. He, he built his life on those principles and he taught his children that you are not entitled to anything. If you want it, you go get a job, you earn the money to get what you want. There's no entitlement in life. He, he also taught his kids that when you're married, you work through marriage problems. Divorce is not an option. You, you have struggles, you work through them, you deal with them. His mindset was you marry a, a man and a woman, get married, and they're married for life. Divorce isn't an option. We work through all the difficulties and struggles of life. He, I, I'm 99% sure that my grandfather was not a Christ follower. He was not a man of faith. But yet, he built his life on biblical principles and lived by them. He, he, I remember one time when I was going with him, he took me for a ride in his Mercedes. He, he opened the door, put me in the car. I was probably 12 or 14. And he looked at me and his gruff voice said, don't touch anything. And then he shut the door and I got in. So I had to sit there like this driving. I couldn't even put the seatbelt on because I might get dirty. And so we went down to the county office or a courthouse and he walked in and he paid his property taxes. And I had no idea what he's doing. I just saw him writing a check and whatnot. And so I go, hey, grandpa, you don't ask my grandpa a lot of questions, only ones that are important. So you have to figure out what's important. So I said, hey, grandpa, what did you just do? He said, oh, I paid my property taxes. And I go, oh, is that bad? He goes, no, that's a good thing. If you're paying property taxes, that means that you have property. Because in the Depression, you lost your property. He goes, and by the way, if you're paying income taxes, that's a good thing too because it, it tells you that you've earned an income to live by. So paying taxes isn't a bad thing. He he. He lived his life with, with such great principle because he said, if you get married, then you should have children because you want children. And if you have children, then what you do is you raise those children up to be good citizens in the community. And that those children, when they say they'll do something, they'll do it. 
It's your responsibility to discipline the children. It's your responsibility to teach the children. It's your responsibility to encourage the children. It, it, it isn't left to anybody else. And, you know, if people were around my grandfather, you know what they would call him? Old-fashioned. You know what else they would say about him? Is he's intolerant of other people. Because he wouldn't, he would voice his opinion on some of the hogwash that goes on in our world today. He would say it straight up, but he would get labeled. He died at the age of 84 and accomplished everything that he set out to accomplish. Today, in our world, divorce is a given. I remember talking with a young couple who know other couples who are, have lived together for a long time and they won't get married because why get married? Because we're going to end up divorced anyway. That's the mindset of a lot of people today. You know, the, the other thing that goes on is, is that it's not just one man marrying one woman. Now it can be a man marrying a man or a woman marrying a woman and guess what we call it? Normal. Children are no longer raised by their parents. It's by daycare by, and by the school system. Parents are shipping their kids off to school and say, teach my kids, help my kids, encourage my kids, do all the stuff for parents, and after eight hours, send them back home, and we'll feed them and play games with them and put them to bed, and we'll send them back to you to take care of them. People today, if they don't want to get a job and work hard, what do they do? They go to the government and they say, you know what? I need a house and, and I need food and I need clothing. And the government says, well, okay, we'll give it to you. And so a lot of things have changed around our world today. I mean, so many things. You can no longer have biblical convictions and live by them. Because today, if, if a same-sex couple came into my office and said, we want to get married... And I would say, you know what? Uh, that goes against my principles. It goes against my faith. It goes against everything that God said for me. I, one of two things would happen, or maybe both. I'd get fined and I'd get thrown in jail. Because I no longer, and you no longer, have the right to live according to God's word and religious convictions. There's no more moral values that we can attach to our lives and say, this is how I live my life regardless of what's going on around me. It, it, it's, it, we have to give up our beliefs to those who don't want us to stand for righteousness and godliness. We become intolerant and discriminating because we believe what God says is true. And it's ridiculous and it just blows my mind that we've come to the place where... where, where our lives have turned upside down because of a minority of people in our country. You can take God's name in vain all you want, but if you say anything against the Muslims, you're intolerant and a bigot. It's just, doesn't it just blow your minds a little bit to where we're at today? And I know that if my grandfather were here, he would be absolutely disgusted with what our country has come up with. The issue that we all face now, living as Christ followers and obeying what God has called us to do, 
is that we have a culture that wants nothing to do with God or his values or his righteousness. We look at the condition of our country and we have to, we have to make a decision of whether we're going to follow God or we're going to give in to the culture around us. And we wonder, how do we live in a world that seems to say that what is wicked and sinful is good and what is righteous and holy is bad? How do we live in a world that has changed so dramatically? Because it it really pushes in on us and it's really making us think. And we have to do one of two things. We either give into our culture and we start to say it's okay to do these certain things, to believe in certain things that God says are, are wrong, or we stand up for God's righteousness and holiness and we're going to pay a penalty for that. So the choice really comes down to us. What are we going to do? Well, you know, John already told you we're starting a new series in the in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And, and the reason Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church is because the very same issues that we're dealing with right now, they were dealing with 2,000 years ago. They lived in a city, in a culture... And the culture really was shaping their worldview, dictating how they would live and behave. And he wanted them to have consecrated conduct. In other words, consecrated means holy or sanctified or devoted to God. He identifies the person that lives as a, as a person that has um, consecrated conduct. He says it in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Corinth to reprove them, to talk to them, to kind of chastise them, about their errant beliefs in God. I mean, they, they had all these things going on around them. And, and the central theme of the letter is to drive home the truth that as believers, we are expected to conduct ourselves in a way that identifies us with Jesus, not our culture. Now, let me give you a little background on Corinth. It was an ancient city in Greece in Greece, and approximately 48 miles from Athens. The city was part of a major Mediterranean trade route and was relentlessly bombarded with commercial traffic. I mean, everything was coming and going all the time. And add to the mayhem of that, a major part of their culture included the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses, including a temple to Apollo that was set up in honor of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and um, fertility and lust. Matter of fact, this temple that they set up in Corinth employed more than a thousand prostitutes who were there and were in nearly the entire Corinth society practiced their rituals in worship at that temple with those prostitutes. You wouldn't want to go, hey, little Johnny, 14, 
why don't you go down to the temple and make a sacrifice for us? Yikes. The people of Corinth were an incredibly wealthy civilization. They were highly schooled in Greek philosophy and followed the beliefs and practices of those who maintained the age-old eat, drink, and fornicate idea. That's what they, they lived for. The, the Corinth environment made it extremely difficult for believers to maintain their faith, constantly having to face the familiarity and the enticements of their culture. And it's into this setting that Paul writes this letter because, because they've been writing back to him. When, when he was in Ephesus, he planted the church in, in, uh, in Corinth. And, and he, he had believers there and he taught them and helped them to understand everything that was going on. But the problem is, is that they had quickly fallen from the original teaching of Jesus Christ and they had gone back to their old sinful behavior and habits. And, and so there's all these questions coming up. How do we do worship services? What about meat and all the rest of these things? And so they wrote these letters asking for help. And the things that they struggled with the most were divisions among the church, materialism and greed, lawsuits among fellow believers, marriage issues, including fornication, idolatrous sacrifices, attacks on spiritual leadership, and the most prominent, sexual perversion. That's what, that's what they were facing, and that's what had seeped into the church. And so now they're having to deal with all that. But Paul also offered the, the, this church a real hope. Because, I mean... You're facing this dilemma all the day. You're looking at all the things that are coming at you, all the temptations day in and day out. And and what do you do? And so the hope that he gave to them comes out of chapter 10. And it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Now, that is just such a God who understands the human mind and, and, and the lust of the heart. He's telling us that no matter what comes our way, it's, he's not going to allow us to be tempted with something that we can't handle. And even in the stuff that we can handle... God's always going to give us an exit strategy out of the stuff that comes our way. The problem we have is we don't engage our brains in these kind of things and we don't think ahead of kind of our default sin, gossip, lying, stealing, pornography, whatever it is, whatever the one thing is that you are most susceptible to go back into the trough and eat of, God's telling you, before you get to that trough of sin, there's the door over there. And so if we are really engaging in the mind of Christ, what we would be doing is we'd be looking at that that door ahead of time and we would know the triggers that come into our life and we would say, oh, there's the first trigger. I need to go over there and get away from this over here. God's giving us that ability. But that comes along with common sense. We know ourselves. You can't ask somebody else to plan, give you a, 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 a strategy or a plan to get out from under temptation. 
You know what it is. God knows what it is. And the two of you together will create a plan, an exit strategy that will keep you from going down the path of the Corinthian church. There are many incredible revelations provided in this book regarding conduct of Christ's followers, including how to approach and observe communion, how to fulfill specific ministries within the church, the in-depth instruction for prophecy, and the appropriate conduct for prophets and their wives. All these are important for the survival and the growth of the church, not only in Paul's day, right now. Overall, 1 Corinthians 11 speaks volumes of how the Corinthians were to conduct themselves. It says this, simple, easy to memorize. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, what Paul is telling them is, you know me, I have spent time with you, I have walked with you, you know the conduct of a righteous man because I showed you what that was. I preached to you who Jesus is and what God expects of you. Now, as I live out the characteristics of Christ in my life, copy me as I copy Jesus. That, that's what he's asking them to do. He wants them to, to come alongside of it. He's giving them a loving reminder that their obligation is to present themselves worthy of their calling of Christ Jesus. Comes back to the book that's still sitting on my desk that I, I've started to read and kind of put away, but I, I'm getting back at it. It's called the Christian Atheist. There, there are far too many people sitting in churches very similar to this church who, who claim the name of Jesus and say they love God and they come to church and they hang out and they know all of the religious jargon that they need to speak to other people to impress them. But when they get up and they walk out the doors of the church, they live their lives as though God doesn't even exist. And that was part of the influence of what was happening in that church. He wants them to understand that they have someone who they should follow and there are people who have gone before them and said this is what it looks like to live a Christ and godly life. The characteristics of Jesus are these. And then watch those people as they live. That's why discipleship is such an important part and aspect of the church because it's like a newborn baby. When that baby comes out of the womb and you don't just set it in the chair over there in the corner of your house and go like, welcome to the family. There's food in the refrigerator. We got some milk for you, the little powdered stuff. You got to mix it up. You can drink that and then feed yourself. Good luck. Because that's what we do at the church with new believers. We're happy that they're born, born again. We get the hallelujah thing going on. And we, we might even get a little little soul into us and we go Jesus has come into your life and we get all excited about it don't we and then we go like but you know what good luck and we leave them to try and figure out a life with Christ all on their own and what happens when that comes along is they they don't step into the reality of Jesus righteousness in their life They continue to live the life that they've always had and they try to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on... It's like taking a cow pie and sprinkling little sugar sprinkles on top of it and serving it to your family as a meadow muffin. That's going to be really good. Look at the sprinkles on top. Go ahead, eat that. Everybody's going like, are you kidding me? 
That's what happens in our lives when, when, when we are not immersed into the Word of God and we let it roll into our lives to teach us and to train us and to change our thinking and to give us new behaviors, give us new motivations, give us a new way of living. When we, do, when we aren't in that way, all we're going to end up with is a pile of crap. And God does, God's got such a great festive table that he wants to feed your soul from. It will nourish you. It will grow you. It will help you to understand. Now, here's, here's the issue. Every problem Paul discusses with the Corinthians has its root in Greek culture. And almost every argument appeals to Christ in some way. So he's bringing up the the culture of the Greeks right here, and he's going, this is what you're, you're, you're enacting into your life, but this is what Jesus says. And he's fighting culture with the creator of the universe. Now, in this book, as Paul makes references about the influences of the culture, you will never see the word culture appear in the letter. He just, he just talks about the influences of it without actually calling it out. And, and it's not the culture that's the key point here. The key concept in 1 Corinthians is, wait for it, because this is going to blow your minds. Jesus! And you guys are going like, oh, Paul wrote the letter? I'm shocked. It's all about Jesus again. You guys are going like, wait a minute. We just did Colossians and Colossians was all about Jesus. And now we're in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Corinthians is all about Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, just, just a little, you know, cheat sheet thing for you. The whole Bible about Jesus. Okay. So. The argument that Paul uses to advance in advancing to solve the various problems of the church are rooted in Christ. Paul's argument about, about the division of the church is found in chapter 1. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's really important because there are primary things within the, in our faith that have to be primary to everybody. You believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he is God incarnate, that he is everlasting from everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end that he is the one who provided the perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He died for us. He fulfilled all the regulations of the law by his death, burial, and resurrection. He was raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day, and I'm thinking it's going to be sooner than later, he's coming back for all of his kids. That's kind of the tenet of faith that you have to believe. Now, there are things in the second circle of faith that you, you can have an opinion about it. And it's okay because there's Scripture would support another opinion about it. And I'm just going to give one to you, predestination versus free will. You can find a plethora 
of scriptures that talks about free will. You can go over here and you can find uh, all kinds of scripture written by Paul about predestination. So is either one of them right, one's right and one's wrong? Well, I don't know that I would say that because there's a scripture, enough scripture supporting both views. And so that's kind of a secondary issue that we can discuss about, we can have a conversation about, but it isn't going to make a difference on my eternal destiny. Right? There are the tertiary issues, those ones way out there that Paul talks about that you go like, what in the world was he talking about? I mean, did he just kind of like have a brain fart when he wrote that or something? Because it's, it, it just doesn't make any sense because he says, don't forget to pray for the dead. And you're like, what's he talking about? I have no clue. And, and you just go like, and so you don't make doctrine off of one little statement that seems to come out of the blue. It was specifically written for the, the church that he was writing to because there was something going on there that he was dealing with. They knew what he was talking about, and the rest of us were left in the dark. So we just don't travel down that path to try and figure it out. We'll waste our time. We have bigger things to do. As, as we go on, we're talking about the... Paul's talking about the centrality of Christ to the church. He implies that they were baptized in the name of Christ, and that's found in the first chapter as well. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He's going, it's all on the baptism of Jesus because of what he did on the cross for us. Paul goes on to say that Christ is the crucified one, the power of God, and the wisdom of God found in chapter 2. For I decided to know nothing among you, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling as my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He goes on to say that Jesus is the foundation of the church in chapter 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In discussing fornication, Paul notes that Christ is our Passover lamb in chapter 5. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may have be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, we should clean ourselves out of the old leavened sin of our lives. That's what he's saying. Get rid of that stuff. He argues that for a Christ follower to commit fornication is to join Christ to a prostitute. And that's found in chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are the member of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of prostitutes? Never. Did you guys know that the Bible talked about all this stuff? I mean, it's really jam-packed in, in the, in the 1 Corinthians. He refers to the command of the Lord in the instructions about marriage in chapter 7. To the married, I, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate her, separate her, separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. In discussing food offered to idols, Paul states that the believers have one Lord, 
and that's Jesus Christ. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we share in the body and the blood of Christ. In chapter 10, the cup of this blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul exhorts the church to imitate him as he imitates Christ. In discussing head coverings, he argues that Christ is the head of every man in chapter 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. It's talking about constituted authority by God. He also goes on to talk about and have a discussion on the Lord's Supper. He recounts the words of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed in chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In, in his discourse on spiritual gifts, he calls the church the body of Christ. In chapter 12, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And he grounds his discussion of the resurrection on the resurrection of Christ. Now, I have just given you a 30,000 foot view of Colossians and some of the major themes that come out of there. And some of you are going like, okay, I really like that. I kind of have an idea where we're going. But, you, you know, there may be some people who are going like, when he comes to a certain part in, the bi- in Corinthians on sin, I think I'm going to miss that week because I don't really want to hear it. So, you know, if you're gone, we'll know why you're gone. <laughs> now, that's a good way to get church attendance, is it not? especially when you start talking about fornication. The place will be packed. I don't want him to think I was messing around. (laughs) First Corinthians is a complex conversation that requires more than a single reading to gain the insight and understanding what Paul's providing to the church as consecrated conduct. If I were to try and boil this letter into one simple statement, which isn't easy to do, Here's what I would boil it down to. Obey Christ rather than following cultural customs. That doesn't give you permission not to come back for the next 10 months as we work our way through this. So what does spiritual freedom mean to a new Christ follower? When everyone around is caught up in immorality, you're bombarded with constant temptation. How do you stand for righteousness? You know, you've heard your kids say it. Maybe you said it when you were a kid. Well, everybody else is doing it. And you remember what your parents said to you? Well, if everybody's jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? (laughs) I memorized that from my parents because I knew I was going to need it later on. This fledgling church in Corinth was floundering with all kinds of questions about life in society and a culture that went in the opposite direction of God. So they wrote these letters, and and they're trying to figure out their newfound faith while living in a city that was 
overtaken with corruption and idolatry. And I'm going to tell you right now that that city is no different than major cities and even towns in our country. A hundred years ago when my grandfather was 28, there was a different prevailing attitude and conduct of people that lived in our nation. And that has all changed over the last hundred years. hundred years seems like a long time. But really in the in view of eternity, it's just a drop in the bucket. And things have changed. Things have changed so drastically in the last 15 years in our country that I hear so many parents saying, I'm not sure that I really want to raise children in the atmosphere of the culture that we live in. As I told you before, Paul planted this church and now just a few years later, he's dealing with the problems. The church was troubled with divisions and lawsuits, believers, sexual sins, disorderly worship, and overall spiritual immaturity. Paul wrote this uncompromising letter to confront and correct the disciples, answer their questions, instruct them in several areas. He warned them not to be conformed to the world around them, but rather to live as godly examples, reflecting the Christ-likeness in the midst of an immoral society. That is our call. That's our call. And the only way we know how to live a life that reflects Christ-likeness is to engage in the Word of God, let it penetrate our hearts, ask God to move our minds to start thinking the way He wants us to think, and then live it. And understand this. You will make strides forward and then you will fall back because we are human and we are not perfected yet. We will not live in perfection until we enter into the kingdom of God in heaven. But until that point, we strive on with the help of the Holy Spirit to produce in our lives the, the, the conduct that is more reflecting of Christ than anything else we've ever known in our lives. This book is highly applicable. I'm going to hit on about five major themes that come out of this. There's unity among believers. The problem that the, the, the church was having is, is that they were all kind of picking up on three kind of different themes there or teachers. Some people were listening to Paul and saying, well, I'm going to do whatever Paul says. Some were living, li- li- listening to Cephas. And they go, well, I think Cephas has the right answer. And then someone else was listening to Apollo and going, nope, Apollo's got it all right. And the message that Paul's bringing is it's not the messenger that counts. It's the message that they bring. That, that's the big deal. It doesn't matter who's up here standing with the Word of God open, who's saying it. It's the message that God has placed on their heart to, to transfer to our hearts so that we live differently. We have such, we live in such an amazing time. I mean, there's bad and there's good. And it's on both sides of the coin on everything. We live in a world of of such great technology that you can go home today after you've listened to me talk and you can YouTube or pull up or listen to some of the greatest communicators of God's word in the world. You can, you can do it. And you're going to go like, wow, Ken really stinks. Well, that's okay. 
Ken lives in Lander, so you're stuck with what you get, okay? I, and, and by the way, listen, I'm not self-deprecating here. I really understand who I am. I am not the guy that's lighting the world on fire and having a church of 25,000 people. I'm not invited to go and speak around to the world at conventions. And thank God I'm not because I'm not wired that way. And so uh, I know who I am. And I'm confident in who I am. And I'm reminded of who I am every morning when I pull a shirt off the hanger and I look at the tag, it says medium. You know what medium means? It means average. That means I'm not lighting the world on fire, but I'm not stinking the joint up either. All right? And so I get that about myself. And and God uses me in my weaknesses and in my strength. But the problem we have is that people are listening to all these great speakers. And guess what they do? They take notes on the piffy little things that these guys say. Well, I heard so-and-so say this, and I heard so-and-so say this. And, and so it goes back and forth, and pretty soon people are listening to all these different guys speak. And, and it's not bad that they're listening to them, but it's that they're not really saying, does what this man say line up with what the Bible has to say? That's the big deal. Because what will happen eventually becomes a breeding ground for disunity in the church because all of a sudden you've got fractions of people listening to different guys going like this guy's theology is better than that guy's theology or that guy's theology and so we get these little fractions and all of a sudden you're fighting over issues that really don't matter one little lick and that's what the issue that paul was addressing here because there wasn't this unification among and i don't mean when you're unified that's totally different than being all the same, thinking the same thing. We have different thoughts. God made us different ways, and we encourage each other with those things. Let me press on. One of the other things that comes up out of this is is spiritual freedom. Paul talks about spiritual freedom, that because we're in Christ, we have freedom to do and, and to live. But one of the issues that they were having there is there were some people who were eating the meat from served to idols, and it, and it was really bothersome to other people because they came out of that setting and they were they're just going like how can you do that and it was causing these weaker brothers and sisters to sin and so what paul says is you know what for the sake of your brother and sister why don't you forego your your freedom in christ to participate in this specifically while you're with them and that's the message we need today you may have the freedom in Christ to, to drink wine or beer or whatever and do it biblically, which means you don't get drunk and, and, and you drink a little bit of alcohol. That's, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't do that. What it says is don't get drunk. But on the other hand, you, you shouldn't be doing it around your brothers and sisters who have, who have come out of alcoholism and are dealing with that and, and so we don't want to lay the temptation before them right in front of their face. We should be able to love people enough to say, you know what, at this situation, in this place, I am going to forego my freedom in this for your benefit. That's what a loving community does for one another. The next little thing that comes out of Paul's teaching one of the great themes is holy living. The church here in in 
the Corinthian church had lost its appreciation for the holiness of God. And the holiness of God is our standard for holy living. You can't live a holy life without looking at the holiness of God. And that's what we want to do. That's what consecrated conduct is all about, holy living. Then the next one that Paul kind of brings to our attention is church discipline. In the Corinthian church, they had all kind of sexual immorality going on in the church. And guess what? Nobody was stepping up to the plate and going like, you know what? God says specifically you shouldn't be doing that. Do you know how wrong that is for you to do that? Nobody was stepping up and dealing with it in the way that God would call us to bring church discipline to the members of the body. And I will tell you that church discipline is one of the most difficult things to deal with within the body because you know why? Because <laughs> as soon as you come to somebody and say, you know what, I have seen this, this motivation behind you. I've seen this behavior. I've seen these attitudes. I've seen this conduct. And did you know that this is what the Word of God, you can use it as a teaching moment to inform people of what God expects from us and how He wants us to live, to live righteous and holy. But we don't do it because there's a number of reasons. Number one, pastors are afraid to approach somebody whose conduct is anti-biblical because they're afraid that they're going to leave the church and go somewhere else. You know, you take a look around, you kind of go like, well, what did you do last week, Pastor Ken? Where is everybody? The other reason that the people don't do it is because they take a look at their own life and they say, you know what? I don't have my ducks in a row. I don't have all my stuff. So who am I to say somebody, something to somebody like that? Who am I to get involved in their lives? I'm no one special. You know what that is? That's a cop-out and that's being cowardly. Because if God's called you to say something to somebody else, he's going to give you the wisdom in how to say it. And that's the third point, is that whenever we deal with somebody on a spiritual issue that we're, we're reproving them on, that we're saying, you know, this is a big deal and you need to take a look at this, it has to come through the urgency of prayer on our knees so that when we say it, they receive it with love and their lives are transformed by God and there's a change of behavior. That's what church discipline should look like. The last one that I'm going to hit today is the proper worship. It's an overreaching and overarching theme in, in this book of 1 Corinthians. It's a need for true Christ-empowered love, love that will settle lawsuits, conflicts between brothers. A lack of genuine love was clearly the undercurrent in this Corinthian church and it was creating disorder in worship misuse of spiritual gifts and Paul spent a great time, amount of time describing the proper role of spiritual gifts and he dedicated an entire chapter, chapter 13 to defining love for us and that love is what motivates our worship and our ministry. We need to make sure that the reason of what we're doing, whether it's in worship or if it's in ministry, is born out of a deep love for Jesus. No other reason. So what do we do with this little... By the way, that's just the introduction to 1 Corinthians, not my sermon. I'm going to wrap it up right now. So what do we do with this introduction to 1 Corinthians? 
Well, in the next few months, as we start to study and go through this more in depth, you will benefit from taking the letter that Paul wrote and start to read through it. Because then your mind will already be on the same wavelength as the Spirit of God. And you'll walk in and you're going to hear what God has to say to you from this book about your life. So I would just encourage you to just simply take it and start to read it. And here's some questions that, that I think you should specifically be asking yourself as you, re- not just reading this letter, but anytime, but specifically as we get ready to go through this. What is God specifically saying to me? Is there an area in my life that God is pointing out to me that needs his work in order for me to have a deeper relationship with Jesus? How is what I'm learning useful for the growth of the church and myself? And finally, as Paul's stating to the Corinthian church, what's driving my conduct, the culture or Christ? We touched briefly on these five areas of conduct this morning, unity, spiritual freedom, holy living, church discipline, motivation for worship and ministry. And it, you know, the, the question we need to talk about right now, is there an area that you need to seek the work of the Spirit of God for in your life in regards to any one of these five areas? You already know it. And you're going like, God, I've got something that needs to happen. Talk to God about it. He'll reveal it to you. So here, the call for us today is the same as it was in Paul's day. I'm going to boil it down to you. Obey Christ rather than following cultural customs. Amen? Our Father, we, we thank you because you knew in your sovereignty that our hearts are desperately wicked and the issues that Paul was dealing with with this church are the very same issues that we have to deal with in our own culture. And sometimes we get discouraged and disheartened over all the things that are going on. And sometimes we feel like just giving up and giving into the culture because it would be much easier. But yet you said that you would come alongside us, that you would help us, that you would strengthen us, that you won't allow a temptation to come to us that we can't handle. And when it does, you're going to give us a way of escape. You're telling us that this whole thing is about Jesus. And as we trust Jesus, he's going to lead and guide us as our ears are open to the spirit, what we should do, how we should live, the changes we need to make. And we just thank you that you are that concerned about our lives because sometimes we feel so puny in your sight. Sometimes we feel that you are so distant and so far away, but yet you are up close and personal all the time. And so as we prepare our hearts, may you speak directly to the things that we're dealing with so that we be better prepared to live as men and women in a culture that hates God, that we'd stand up for righteousness and holiness and our Our attitudes, our behavior, our motives would reflect the reality of Christ in our lives. And we thank you for doing that for us. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen.